0: So what we're going to do this morning, uh, the sermon title is gospel-shaped discipleship. And so we're we're kind of in the middle of this summer and just so you know, Will and I are both really uncomfortable with with not preaching through books of the Bible. Um, and so I can't wait. Lord willing in September on the 4th we'll be back in the gospel of Matthew chapter 8. So so that's that's where I'm at home. That's where I love just preaching through. So the these sermons, I think these messages are beneficial but um, it's really hard for me to prepare sermons that are, that are just say what I want to say, kind of. So just so you know, stick with us and we'll be back in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. But we are, this summer we have been looking at how the Gospel shapes our lives and every aspect of our lives. And several weeks ago we started looking at, at relationships and we looked at the marriage relationship, how the Gospel shapes Christian marriage. And then last week we looked at how the Gospel shapes families. And so we're continuing looking at relationships, but, but this week and next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at relationships within the body, so, so local church relationships. And so the, the process or, or the thinking behind, the rhyme and reason behind this is we started with the closest relationships, marriage and family, and now we're going to look at relationships within the church, which, which come after marriage and family. Uh, and so then in August, the month of August, we're going to look at relationships to those outside the church. So that's kind of the, the process and, and the rhyme or reason behind this, this order. And so this week and next week, Lord willing, the two aspects of relationships within the body of Christ, within the local church, are going to be this week discipleship and next week discipline. Okay, so we're going to look at discipleship and discipline. And we're going to see... That both for discipleship and for discipline, they're both designed to contribute to and promote Christian growth or Christ-likeness. That's, that's what these relationships within the church are meant to do. And it, it happens through discipleship and through discipline. And both of them, dis, discipleship and discipline, have a, an individual and a corporate aspect to them. There's overlap. An individual Christian, hopefully what you see today, cannot disciple anyone apart from the local church. At least as God has ordained it. And in the same way, an individual cannot discipline anyone apart from the local church, at least as how God has designed it. And so because discipleship and discipline are both commands given to the church and individuals in the church, so there's going to be overlap. So hopefully you'll see that and, and recognize there's a tension there. But our focus today is on discipleship. And I'm certain that that you've heard many sermons on discipleship. Perhaps you've read many books on discipleship, been uh, listened to podcasts or seminars. And and there's a lot of good material on discipleship and there's some not good material on discipleship. What I want to do today, something that I don't know gets done very often in discussions on discipleship, is I just want to step back and and just paint a big, broad picture. I want to take the wide lens view on discipleship. And so I'm not going to get bogged down in practical advice or overly specific suggestions or programmatic discussion. I just want to step back and ask the big questions. What is discipleship? Why do we do it? What's its purpose? How do we do it? What are the basics? And because I want to do that, you can rest assured that there's going to be things I don't say. So, so I'm, I welcome you afterward to say, well, well, discipleship is this, or you didn't say this. I know that that's going to, I'm going to not say some things, and you can come tell me what I didn't say. I'm okay with that. I recognize I'm not going to say everything because I just want to lay out the big picture and it's going to be an intentionally simple view of discipleship in order to help us as a church to continually work towards a culture of discipleship where we as members are constantly caring for and encouraging one another because that's what we're going to see is discipleship. That's what it is. And so I want us as a church body, as a fellowship, to be constantly caring for and encouraging one another. So that's the plan. Here's the outline there. There's four points that we're going to work through, and I'm going to give you the outline now, then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll just we'll work through the four points. So the, the first point, we're going to see the priority of discipleship. You have to bear with me. They are all starting with Ps. Uh, priority of discipleship, the purpose of discipleship, the place of discipleship, and the practice of discipleship. We'll work through each one of those um, as we go. But, but let me before we begin, let me pray for our time together. So let's pray. Fathers, we just read in Titus 2, my prayer for myself, my prayer for us as members of this local body, my my prayer for Christians here and worldwide is that we would live lives that adorn the gospel of our great God and Savior. I pray that our lives would, would affirm and give credence and credibility to what we say we believe. We repent for failing to live consistent with our confession. We ask that you would give us grace to repent as often as we fail to live according to our calling. Father, I pray that you would make us here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church zealous for good works. And I pray specifically that that relationships within this body would be would grow and would be used to encourage. One another. So thank you for your family. Thank you for this local church and, and the many all over the peninsula and in the state and in the world um, who have gathered together as, as brothers and sisters at this time on this Lord's Day to encourage one another. So I pray that you would that you would glorify yourself in the gathering of your people and in their lives and relationships. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're gonna start with number one: the priority of discipleship. So the first point to establish here is that every single Christian, every person who's a Christian, is someone who follows Christ and aims to help other people follow Christ. Okay, every Christian is a disciple. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. And your call, part of your identity as a follower of Jesus, is to help other people follow Jesus. that's That's what a disciple is, someone who helps someone else follow Jesus. And so if you're a Christian, your disciple and your calling in life is to help other people follow Christ, period. For the sake of this series, I am distinguishing between discipleship and evangelism, okay? So I'm referring as discipleship to discipleship as something that happens among Christians, okay? So, so discipleship is something that, that Christians help other Christians do. Now, I have no problem recognizing that, that in this case, evangelism must precede discipleship. You can't follow Jesus if, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, okay? So evangelism precedes discipleship for our sake and for our purposes here, Right? You can't disciple someone who isn't a Christian. Now, some people would say no, discipleship, the first step in discipleship is evangelism. That's fine. It's just semantics. I recognize that. But for our case here, discipleship, I'm referring to it as Christian to Christian. And I just want to make the point here, the priority of discipleship is that Christians disciple other Christians because that's what Christians do. This is what I mean when I say I want us to get the big picture of discipleship. If you are a Christian, you're called to be engaged in discipleship. Discipleship is not something reserved for Henry Duncan who in my church growing up, he was, the, he was like the discipleship master and, and everyone thought, well, that's, that's Henry's job. No, no, that is every Christian's job. Henry was gifted and he did a lot of good, but every Christian is called to make disciples. If you're a Christian, you're called to be engaged in discipleship. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how little you think you know. It doesn't matter how unqualified you believe yourself to be. If you're a Christian, you're called to help other Christians follow Christ. So that's the priority. If you're a Christian, you need to turn on your ears because this is for you. You are called to disciple others. That's a priority of discipleship. That leads to point two in the purpose of discipleship. And the reason that discipleship is necessary is because every single Christian, with no exception, is in process. So if you're a Christian here, you haven't arrived at your end goal. You still have areas. You still maybe have rough edges. You still have habits or patterns or attitudes or heart desires that, that are in need of reform or sanctification or holifying, right? We're all in process. If you don't know what yours are, ask, ask your kids or your spouse or your neighbors, right? They would they'd probably really easily be able to say, well, you get, you get angry a lot or, or I've heard the way you talk to your spouse. We all are in process. There's no Christian that you have ever known who is not in need of growth. So, so we just, we recognize that and we recognize that's the purpose of discipleship to help Christians grow, If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just just address you for just a second. And I want to address you because I want to free you from a common misconception about Christianity. And I just want you to know that becoming a Christian, that following Christ, does not require you to get yourself together first. I've heard it. Well, I can't follow Jesus because I still got my junk. right? That's okay. Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up and then coming to Christ. That's not the gospel. Jesus doesn't call you to get your stuff together and then come appeal to him for grace and mercy. It's not like a job interview or a first date. You're not required to, to have to appear confident and pretend, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I've got it together. You don't have to appear like I'm a great catch, like don't let me leave this dinner table without a second date. You don't have to put yourself together and put your best foot forward. That's actually anti-Christian. In fact, it actually cuts against the very heart of Christ. And it cuts against the very melody that the gospel of Christianity sings. The Christ of the gospel says, those who come to me, I will never cast out. The Christ of the gospel says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Christ of the gospel says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I, Jesus says, came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you think you're righteous, you have no place with Jesus. He didn't come for you if you think you have it all together. And so the good news of the gospel, the goodness of Christianity, is that we aren't accepted because of what we offer. And the flip side, we're not cast out because of our failure to measure up. We are accepted and kept because of what Christ has done for us in his life, burial, and resurrection. And so Christ calls us to come as we are. And so if you're here that not a Christian, Christ bids you to come, to follow him as you are with all, your, with all your messed up past, with all your messed up current situation. He comes, he calls you, he welcomes you and will never cast you out so long as you come to him through faith. So Christ welcomes us, knowing our sin, knowing our weakness, knowing our inability to fix ourselves. And so those who come to Christ come trusting that he is enough, that he is our hope in life and death. And so Christ calls us as we are. So if you're not a Christian, I just want to offer you that good news, that you are acceptable not because of what you do or how you perform. You're acceptable because Christ has died and has made a a reconcilable relationship possible between you and your creator. And so he calls us as we are. But don't miss this. He never leaves us as we are. That's a necessary point. When we begin to follow Christ, We come as we are, but we don't stay as we are. As I said, we're all in process. We're all called to change, to grow. And so to follow Christ, every single Christian who's ever followed Christ has been called to continuously die to self and repent of sin and pursue righteousness. That's that's the path we're on. We're constantly repenting of known sin and and pursuing new obedience and repenting of sin and pursuing new obedience. It's not a one time you repent of your sin and you're done, right? That's not the the message of the gospel we repent of sin as we're confronted with it and so every single christian is on this narrow road leading to life and we're all on there we're all at different places i mean some of you are running at an eight minute a mile pace good for you keep running some of you are walking with a severe limp praise god good for you keep limping some of you are carrying no extra baggage right you got your running workout clothes on and you're just moving good for you keep moving some of you are carrying a heavy load right one of those loads that makes a noise when you back up right praise god keep on moving some of you are discouraged or depressed or hurt that's okay you're on the road keep moving some of you are joyful and smiling praise god keep going we're all different Christians, individual Christians, but we're all on the same road, walking the same path, pursuing growth together, marching toward the end goal. In fact, one author describes the Christian life as, as being a tour guide to heaven. You're just helping others get to heaven. We're all going to the same place. And so we're all in process. And so we, we just recognize we all have issues. We all do. I would tell you to look at the person beside you, right or left, and say, you have issues, but I'm not going to do that. But they do. And you have issues, and I have issues. But God is not content to leave us where we are. He's called us and given us much help in growing and changing. And so because we're all in need of growth and change, we're called to discipleship. Because discipleship is one of the ways that God uses to change us. So when you think about discipleship, think about just helping others grow. I mean, that, that's, that's discipleship. I'll give you a definition later, but, but at this point, just recognize discipleship is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will become more like Christ. Just helping someone else grow. It can happen in a whole host of ways. It can be, but it doesn't have to be this formal, organized, structured relationship that meets once a week for 12 months or, or once a week for 20 years. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. It can be, it doesn't have to be a mentor-mentee relationship where someone is clear that the teacher or the expert or someone who is investing in someone else. And so it can be, but it doesn't have to be a mentor-mentee relationship. It can be, it doesn't have to be part of this church program. Like, sign up for our discipleship training. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. It can happen a whole host of different ways. There's no one-size-fits-all. So that's why I just want to step back and say it's simply helping other people grow in Christ. So discipleship is the calling of every Christian, and the purpose of discipleship is Christian growth because we're all in process. That's the purpose of it. Which leads, thirdly, to the place of discipleship. Now, now this is where may, maybe you'll, you'll disagree. Hopefully you don't disagree with anything I've said, big picture-wise. But, but here, maybe, maybe there will be some, some room for discussion. Many of you have probably had positive experiences with discipleship-focused ministries or organizations. And so, for instance, I thought of, about the Navigators. Navigators is a, is a, is a discipleship-based Parachurch ministry started I think with, with, within the Navy and, and now it's worldwide college campuses all over the world and, and they are a discipleship ministry. For me personally at, at, at uh, Christopher Newport University InterVarsity Christian Fellowship was, was a discipleship ministry that, that the Lord used greatly in my life. Think about Young Life is another discipleship ministry. Some of you maybe are part of a, a ladies group called Bible Study Fellowship or, or a MOPs group These are all ministries that that focus on discipleship, and and they are beneficial, and God has used them. And that benefit and effectiveness notwithstanding, the primary place of discipleship is within relationships in the local church, not primarily in parachurch ministries like the Navigators or your, your campus ministry. The primary place of discipleships is relationships within the local church. That's the place of discipleship. I mean, I would actually go as far as to say that the effectiveness of many of these parachurch ministries is due to the ineffectiveness of the local church. I mean, to my shame, as a college student, my church was University Christian Fellowship. I didn't need the local church because all my needs were met there. I say that to my shame. The local church is called to be engaged in discipleship. And I think the ineffectiveness of the local church has led to the need for these parachurch ministries. But my point here, under uh, under this third heading, is that God has ordained relationships within the local church as the primary place for discipleship to take place. And I'm just going to give you two reasons why: why it's relationships, and why it's relationships in the local church. First, why relationships? The first reason has to do with the reality that God has ordained relationships to be a main source of Christian growth. Human relationships are a means of God's grace in the lives of His people. If you're you're a Christian, I'm sure that you can look back on your short or lengthy Christian life and see certain people that have been used significantly in your life. God uses relationships to encourage you, whether it's a spouse who's deceased. Maybe it's your parents who have passed away, your grandparents. I mean, I'm I'm so fortunate. God has blessed me to have my grandparents here every Sunday, and they have been huge influences in my life. I, I mean, I never remember a time at their house where the Bible wasn't open on the kids' table. Right? And that, that has affected me. That's a relationship that God gave me. He didn't have to, but he did. And you have relationships. Maybe not your grandparents, maybe a neighbor or a coworker, or a classmate. If you think about your, your life, I'm certain you can think of relationships that God has used to encourage you and help you to grow because God uses human relationships. He doesn't save us and then say, go, go lock yourself up in a room and read your Bible, he involves you with the lives of other Christians. In fact, in his, it's a great little book called How Does Sanctification Work? or How Sanctification Works by, by David Pallison, who passed away a few years ago. But, but he writes Godly growth is most frequently mediated through the gifts and graces of brothers and sisters in Christ. Godly growth, he writes, is most frequently mediated through the gifts and graces of brothers and sisters in Christ, through relationships. And in that chapter, Palestine identifies other people as one of the major sources of change or growth in the Christian life. God in his mercy surrounds us with other Christians to help us grow. They teach us. They encourage us. They live their lives before us. They rebuke or correct us when needed. They comfort us. And in all those ways, God is doing those things through individuals. Christians are given to one another to help each other grow. So this is the first reason why relationships are the primary place for discipleship to take place. But the second reason, it's not just any relationship, it can be, and it is many relationships, but the primary place is relationships within the local church. Yes, there are relationships outside the local church that God surely has used in the lives of his people, but the second reason the local church is the primary place for discipleship relationships has to do with the very nature of the local church. The relationships within the local church are the primary place for discipleship because every local church has been ordered, organized, put together by God himself. And he's organized every single local church for the benefit of the body and the benefit of every part of the body. See, the reality is that God saves his people And in saving you, he joined you to the body of Christ. And so so if you're a Christian, you've been united to the body of Christ. This is a fundamental part of what it means to be a Christian. It's to be part of the body of Christ. Now, this is a universal body. So so that Christians from every age, alive or dead, have been united to to Christ by faith. So there's a universal church that that extends time and place. We will all be in heaven one day around the feet of Jesus worshiping. The universal church will be together in that day. But the result of being part of the body of Christ universally is that you have a part to play in the body of Christ locally. Being part of the body of Christ universally, a result of that is being part of the body of Christ locally. Now stay with me. This means your participation in or inclusion in the body of Christ universally is evidenced or seen but your participation or inclusion in a particular manifestation of the body of Christ, also known as local church. So, so your inclusion in the body of Christ universally is seen or manifested or evidenced in your participation in the body of Christ locally. I mean, this is the illustration that, that the Apostle Paul would use many times. He refers to Christians as members or parts of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians or Ephesians, he talks about there's many members but one body. Many parts, many diverse parts, differing parts, but all the different parts combine to constitute and serve the one body, right? This is diversity and unity. The many make up the one. That's the language that he uses. And my point here is to state as plainly as possible that if you tell me you're a Christian, if you tell me you're a follower of Christ, while at the same time telling me you don't see a need to be part of a distinct, set-apart group of Christians, a local church, I'm going to tell you, go read 1 Corinthians 12, specifically verse 14, which says, for the body does not consist of one member but many, and ask you point-blankly how beneficial your hand would be if you separated it from your body. Simple question. Or if you have a particular love for your hand, I'd ask you how helpful would your foot be if it was severed from your body? Not helpful. Not helpful. And the follow-up question, the final question would be to ask whether or not a separated hand or a severed foot could actually legitimately be considered part of the body. The body of Christ consists of many members, but all the members function and relate together as one body. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ. And individually, members of it. So he had no problem telling the church at Corinth, you are the body of Christ. He doesn't say, now now you're just a local body. There's a universal body. He says, you are the body of Christ. And individually, you are members of that. And so how someone can claim to be a member of Christ while not actively functioning in the body of Christ, in the local church, the local manifestation of the body of Christ, I will never know. Because I don't know how you recognize a member apart from its function. All of that to say, the second reason why relationships within the local church are the primary place of discipleship is that the place where God has united specific Christians to pursue and promote spiritual growth together is the local church. He calls you to join his people. You don't do that apart from showing up at a specific address, at a specific time, at a specific place. God has given us relationships with others as a means of growth, reason one, but he's, God's also given us a specific place to find those specific relationships, which is the local church. So the local church is the primary place where discipleship relationships are to be pursued, which leads us finally to our fourth point, the practice of discipleship. Now, Rez, I haven't even given you a definition yet, so, so let me start this last section. This is just going to be practical, but I want to start with a definition, at its most basic level, discipleship is, here's definition, Christians intentionally encouraging other Christians within the context of the local church. Christians intentionally encouraging other Christians within the context of the local church. It's not overly complicated, it's not extremely confusing. Christians or discipleship isn't Christians intentionally encouraging other Christians. Another author defined it, as I mentioned earlier, deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. I think that that gets to a similar point. The simplicity, deliberately doing spiritual good to someone. Some churches and organizations have more formal or organized definitions of discipleship, which can or cannot be helpful. Some churches take more structured, programmatic approaches, and these can or can't be helpful. But underneath it all, discipleship is what happens through intentional relationships within a local church. And and so, in my case, discipleship has has always been programmatic. And I just want to say, first and foremost, discipleship isn't a program. It's not something that, that, that the church has to have this formal structure for. It can, and sometimes it's really helpful. But it's not, first and foremost, a program. It's something that every Christian pursues regardless of the structures or programs of the church. Every Christian pursues discipleship through providentially ordained relationships within his or her local church. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, you should be part of a local church. If you're part of a local church, you should have relationships with other Christians in that local church. And for you and for me, I'm called to pursue discipleship in the context of those relationships in that place, which means that I should intentionally seek to encourage and spur on my brothers and sisters in Christ that have joined to the same local body as me. I should deliberately do good to them so that they might grow to be more like Christ. And it's not easy to do if you if you interact with your brothers and sisters that you're called to be in relationship with for an hour and 15 minutes a week. At the end of the day, this simple basic understanding of discipleship ought to be present regardless of programs and structures of the church. Because the purpose of discipleship is Christian growth and every church ought to be motivated by a desire to see people grow. That ought, that ought to motivate Every church. A church should say, We want to see our, our members, Christians that are part of our church, grow spiritually. If you're a Christian, you should want to see other Christians grow. I mean, maybe that's a question you should ask yourself. Do you desire to see other Christians grow? Or are you content to be frustrated with their failure to grow? Maybe a better question do you, as a Christian, desire to grow in Christ? Do you care if you grow? If you don't desire to grow, if you don't desire to see others grow in Christ, you probably aren't a Christian. Because Christians desire to grow, right? Life, evidence of life is growth, or at least a desire to grow. And so if you couldn't care less about growing or couldn't care less about seeing your brothers and sisters grow, I would ask you, maybe you're not a Christian, Christians desire to grow and desire to, desire to see others grow. So, so what, what are the specifics of these intentional discipleship relationships? What, what do they entail that makes them spiritually beneficial? Now, I'm just going to give you two, two things. So if we're making a cake, these are the only two ingredients to make the discipleship dessert. I don't know why I said that. So here are the two ingredients. Teaching and Conduct. Teaching and conduct. When it comes to discipleship, teaching and conduct are two of the main ingredients. Only two. It's not all that it entails, but but these are the two main ingredients. And I say that because these are the two biblical categories that are most often mentioned. So for instance, looking at teaching. In the New Testament, there's this clear emphasis on the passing on of the truth or the teachings. And that passing on happens through relationships. So, So the Apostle Paul to, to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, what I received, I passed on to you. Right? What I received, church, I passed on to you. Right? That, that, that conveys, there, there's this relational dynamic where I'm passing on what I learned. What I received from Jesus, I gave to you. Or in Acts chapter 2, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So, so they're gathering together and they're saying, what, are the, what is the teaching that we need to know? Well, what is the truth about Jesus? What is the truth about salvation? What's the t- truth about Jews and Gentiles? What do the apostles say? The early church listened to and learned from the teaching of the apostles. Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians, he writes, Keep away from every brother who does not live according to the teaching that you receive from us. And so there's this, this teaching that leads to a certain way of life. And he says, if, if they're not living according to the teaching, then stay away from them. There's a clear apostolic teaching that was expected to be followed and handed down and not abandoned. It wasn't like every generation could say, well, let's, let's decide what we believe about God. Let's just, let's just make up our minds. No, it was, this is what the Lord Jesus commanded us. And we're passing it on to you. Don't fall away from this. Titus chapter 2, Paul would say, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine." There was this understanding, there is what is sound doctrine, there is unsound doctrine. And as long as there's been sound doctrine, there have been other false teachers coming in and saying, no, 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 that's not true. And that will be until Jesus comes back. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, what you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, here's what you're to do, entrust it to faithful men so that they will be able to teach others. So he's like, all right, Timothy, what I've taught you, you teach others. And then your expectation is that they teach others. They're just passing on. And this passing on happens through the context of relationships. A major focus of the New Testament when it comes to relationships is on the teaching or sound doctrine being passed down. And it's passed down through relationships. Now this can, as I mentioned, can be accomplished in a formalized weekly study of, the book of uh, any book of the Bible. So, so you can have a group of Christians that get together and study the, the, the book of Acts on a weekly basis, which, which a group of men do at this church on Tuesday mornings, 7 o'clock. You are, you are welcome to come if you're a man. Book of Acts, they're in chapter 5 now, I think. So it can look that way. It can be a weekly women's study where you watch a video lesson and then you talk about it. You do a weekly study and you come together and you just talk about it. That happens here in the fall, in the spring, where we have ladies that come and they do Bible studies together. It can look that way. That's a form of discipleship where truth, where the teaching is being passed down. But it can also be accomplished through a conversation that lasts less than five minutes on a Sunday after the sermon. Where you could, right, so, so you're going to, hopefully you talk to your brothers and sisters after church. Now, you could talk about, right, we're not in football season, but the Washington Commanders are going to be playing, and I'm going to be really excited every Sunday they play. And my temptation is to talk, hey, what's going to happen today? Especially those of you who like the, the team formerly known as the Redskins. But you could say, we just heard God's word preached, or we just sang a song and a truth that really encouraged me. And you could find a brother or sister and say, I just want to encourage you with what I feel like God encouraged me with this morning in Sunday school or in the church service. That is a form of discipleship where you are, you are passing along, here's a truth about God from his word that we just observed or, or I just beheld. And I just want you to know that you're intentionally sharing truth with them so that they might be encouraged. This should be the case when you know of someone who's particularly struggling. It can also be accomplished through regular conversations between children and their parents. Dad, why, why do we do this? Or, or what, is, what is this about God? Why doesn't God do this? These are just conversations where discipleship can happen, where, where, God, where truth can be passed along to another. So regardless of what it looks like, a major ingredient in discipleship relationships is the passing on of teaching or truth. But the second ingredient, which I think is even more clearly dependent upon relationships, is conduct or, or way of life. Discipleship relationships are not merely about a transfer of information. They're also about transformation of life. Right? It involves living an observable life before others. So, so when I disciple others, I'm, I'm passing on truth, but I'm also living a life that's consistent with my teaching. As parents, we know this as well as anyone. We, of all people, should not say, do what I say, not what I do. Right? We have to be consistent with our children. That, that's what, part of what discipleship is. As we live observable, observable lives. I mean, a common refrain again from the Apostle Paul, right in Timothy. He said, You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Or in 1 Corinthians, several times they say, be imitators of me. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the pattern there. Christian lives are meant to aid others in their walk with Christ. I think this is one of the reasons why Christian biographies are so beneficial. Christian biographies are life-changing. Because you're seeing someone else live faithfully before the Lord. Relationships are, are ordained by God to help with Christians' walk. I mean, think about, again, think about your past. Think about all the spiritual activities that you have learned from others, something as simple as church attendance. Again, I grew up in a, in a household where we were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday nights. We were there. And I, that, that's, that's something I learned through the discipleship of my parents. If I want to spend the night at a friend's house on Saturday night, they say, yeah, you can, but we're picking you up at 9 o'clock because you're going to Sunday school in the morning. Okay, if that's my option, I'll do it. Or singing in a worship service. Or praying. Or reading and study, or studying your Bible. Sharing the gospel with a non-believer, Loving your spouse. Raising your children. And all these practices... There are lots of good books and resources. I love books. You should see my office. I have many, many ministry tools that are known as books. However, you can learn things from watching another Christian that you can't learn from a book. Relationships are God-ordained means of growth. They help us know how to live as Christians in this world. In fact, this is one of the functions of pastor elders, to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So so pastor elders are are to be be normal Christians who are extraordinary examples. Not extraordinary Christians, but ordinary Christians who are good examples. It's part of what it means. And that's so that people can see how the Christian life is supposed to look. In fact, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul would say, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Again, the, the pattern of life, that is conduct. A main way that Christians learn how to live Christian lives is through example and and imitation. And just to be clear, I I must insert this caveat. One of the common objections to these types of relationships is the fear of not being qualified. And I just want to say, one of the things that that living your life before others gives you is a rare opportunity not only to display your strengths. Yeah, that's helpful. But also to display your weaknesses. To display your your failures, your struggles, your, your dependence upon the Lord. I mean, consider the young mom who's struggling with her kids and, and her life. Consider what message is sent to her when she only sees other moms who have it all together, have the perfect Instagram-worthy life. And there's never, never a sad child in the home, right? Imagine the message sent. The message is, if you don't have it all together, you're messed up big time. And I can't help you because I have it all together. Or I can never be like her. That's the message it's in. Or consider the message sent to the engaged couple who only see smiles and warm affection between the older married couples. Gosh, I wish I had a marriage like them. In fact, Jancy and I, we, we were leading a small group in seminary. And I remember there's another couple who said, when we get in arguments, we tell ourselves, I bet Nathan and Jancy never fight like this. And I said, no, 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 no. We fight just like that because that is an opportunity for people to see this is what the Christian life looks like. It's not always smiles. There's there's struggle. There's discouragement. That's just real life. And so discipleship, opening yourself up and having a relationship with someone that, that you are letting in, there's a risk. But there's great glory to be had for God who sustains you in the midst of difficulties. There's enormous encouragement to be had in seeing other Christians struggle and toil to live faithful Christian lives. So don't let the fear of someone seeing your weaknesses prevent you from intentionally investing in others. We're all weak. We're all in process. We're all great sinners looking to Jesus, our great Savior. The gospel frees us to live transparently before others. You don't have to be afraid of being found out. So, as I close, what to do next? I just have a few points and then we're done. What to do next? First, join a local church. If you're not part of a local church, join a local church. I think this is a good option, but it's not the only option. Find a church to join and be part of and invest in. Don't just join for your own sake, though you will be benefited. Join for the sake of those who need you. Those body parts who are lacking because they don't have you there. Pray, ask the Lord to give you wisdom. Join a local church that you can be part of and serve. If you're already a church member, I would say prioritize participation in your local church. Take opportunities to fellowship with others. Whether it's an official church function, whether it's you just taking the initiative and inviting others into your messy home. It's okay. We all have messy homes. They just get clean 20 minutes before you show up most of the time. So invite others into your home. Participate in relationships within your local church. Next thing to do, consider your immediate family. Here's where there's overlap with, with marriages and families. If you're a Christian and you have immediate family members in your household right now, consider how you might disciple them. Ask how you might intentionally encourage those within your immediate family, your spouse, your children, your siblings. God has placed you in a context with relationships that you don't have to work at. You're around them every day. So ask, how can I use the influence that I have now, the relationships I have now, to encourage and so maybe as, as a husband and wife, maybe when you get home, just have this conversation and say, we haven't done this well. We acknowledge that. Let's start doing this. Or parents, maybe, maybe the first thing you need to do is just apologize to your kids and say, I'm sorry, I've neglected to do this with you. I want to, I want to change. I want to do better. So consider immediate family. Consider your current church relationships. And so maybe some of you have been friends for, for decades. Ask, how might you or how are you intentionally encouraging those already in your fellowship. So maybe you're in a Sunday school class. That means every weekend you've been doing it for decades. That's wonderful. Ask, am I using my words, my time with these other Sunday school members to encourage them spiritually? I mean, you can talk about a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. But but you ought to use them, the relationships, to encourage one another. Have spiritual conversations and intend to do in deliberate good for them. How could you lead a change to shift the relationships that you have within the body towards more spiritually encouraging discussions? Maybe you're you're part of the church. Next thing to do, consider other members who you could learn from. Are there examples that you see that say, I want my marriage to look like that? Maybe they would be willing. And, And approach them. Yeah, it's risky. They may say, no, I don't have time. That's okay. Please don't say that. Make time. If someone asks you to help them, make time. But consider who's someone that you could you could encourage. Or maybe you see a young family or a single or someone in the same realm of work that you are retired from, and you could say, I think I could encourage them. Pursue those relationships. Be intentional. Reach out. Ask the Lord to give you wisdom. Who is someone that I could learn from or encourage? Then the last thing to do, and this is the last point, is pour out your life for others. Do all those first steps, and then just pour out your life Just pour out your life for others, recognizing the reorientation that's fundamental to the Christian life. If you're a Christian, you are not to live for yourself. You have been crucified with Christ. You've been raised again so that you might live for others. And so pour out yourself for others. God, show me the others, and just pour out yourself. Inconvenience yourself. Sacrifice. Pay the price of living for others, because that's what God's called us all to do. And so my prayer is that we would become a culture of disciple makers where every single member recognizes his or her responsibility to build up and encourage everyone else. I mean, just imagine what what our church could look like if if we're all pouring ourselves out for the good of others. Every single member is is caring for and, and building up and serving every other member. All are considering, hey, everyone else in that church is more significant than me. Every other member is more significant than me. I want to do good to every other member I can. All that God gives me opportunity to, I'm just going to bless them and serve them and encourage me. Imagine what the church would look like if we're all considering others. We're not considering ourselves. That's my prayer. Can you imagine the unity and the joy that could characterize this fellowship? Let me pray as as we close.